Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Supreme Court recently wrapped up its 2019-2020 term and handed down two prominent decisions that had to do with education and schooling. The first of these, Espinoza versus Montana, concerns a very small school choice program in Montana. The second, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beirut, has to do with who religious schools are allowed to fire under ministerial exception protections. Sounds like small ball, but they're actually pretty influential decisions. And to talk about them, we brought on Josh Dunn. Josh chairs the Department of Political Science and is the director of the Center for the Study of Government and the Individual at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Perhaps most relevant to today's discussion, Josh co-edited From Schoolhouse to Courthouse, The Judiciary's Role in American Education. And Josh also writes a quarterly article on education and law for Education Next. Josh, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. First off, let me ask you a broad question. How often does education play in the court? I mean, I can think about some of the most famous cases, right? Uh, Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson, and one of them is Brown versus Board of Education, right? This is a household name. So education certainly had some huge verdicts in the past, but on a given year, is education a large part of the Supreme Court's docket? No, it's not. I, I, mean, I think every year there are cases that the Supreme Court decides that can influence education. And so I'll write about some of those. But to have two cases like these two cases, which could end up being land, landmark cases directly involving education, that, that's fairly unusual. So this was a banner year for Ed compared to your, your typical year. Yeah, this was a huge year for education at the Supreme Court. Let me talk about the first case that I mentioned. This is Espinoza versus Montana. But before we get into the specifics of the case, give me a little bit of the background. And maybe the best question is, this is one of the smallest tax credit scholarship programs, both in terms of the amount of money it gives students and the number of students it serves. Why was such a tiny program the subject of such a big case? Well, because the Supreme Court was called upon to decide whether or not Montana's Blaine Amendment was constitutional, or at least the application of it in this case was constitutional. You're right. There, there have probably been 20-some programs, tax credit scholarship programs around the country. None of them have been ruled unconstitutional by their state courts, except for Montana. And so it was significant for that reason. You actually had a state court saying, hey, this uh, tax credit scholarship program doesn't pass muster under, under, under our constitution. But then there are broader implications because in this case, it directly involved a no-aid provision of Montana's constitution called the Blaine Amendment. So that's what makes it significant. This is going to potentially have wide-ranging effects across many, many states. There are about 39, 37 to 39 states that have similar no-aid provisions in their constitution, basically saying, you aren't allowed to give money to any sectarian institution. And Josh, that's what you're referring to when you say the Blaine Amendment. Give me a little background on this Blaine Amendment. Right. So Blaine Amendments uh, were amendments to state constitutions that were added typically in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Some of them were added later. Some of them were re-added when states rewrote their constitutions, as in the case of Montana. The Blaine Amendments are named after Senator Blaine from Maine, who... uh, proposed an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that essentially said you can't provide any funding to sectarian institutions. It was a notoriously anti-Catholic effort by Senator Blaine, even though he was Catholic himself. 
he was trying to posture uh, based on his own desire to run for the, the president to try and allay any fears that he was going to be a, uh, dangerous to the Protestant establishment. Nevertheless, he failed to get it added to the U.S. Constitution, but states ended up adding them to their constitutions. And at the time, they wrote these Blaine, these Blaine amendments. Most of them say you can't give money to sectarian institutions. Everyone knew what sectarian meant. It meant Catholic. Right? So sectarian meant Catholic at the time. So what, just a lot of anti-Catholic animus at the time. More recently, they've just been interpreted, of course, to be any religious institution. So sectarian just means religious. And so that was the issue here in, in Montana. There was a tax credit scholarship program. There's really only one organization that was providing these scholarships. A couple of parents were sending their kids to religious schools, wanted to send their kids to religious schools with, uh, with the scholarships they were receiving. And the Department of Revenue for Montana said, you can't do that. You can't do that because we have this Blaine Amendment here says you can't provide any direct or indirect funding to sectarian institutions, religious institutions. And so you have to stop. And th this part of the tax credit scholarship program had to fall. Then it went to the state Supreme Court and they struck down the whole thing sectarian and non-sectarian private schools. And Josh, you mentioned that with the no-aid clause, it rules that, hey, no direct or indirect funding can go to sectarian institutions. Just to lay out some of the basics of the case, this is a tax credit scholarship program. That's sort of like an indirect funding for private school choice, right? It is, but other states have said that it still doesn't violate their Blaine amendments because the money never reaches the state. If it's a tax credit, it just means that someone gives money that otherwise would have gone to the state to this program. And so what other states have said is that, look, as long as it never actually hits the state's bank account, it's not state money. And to assume otherwise would mean that all sorts of things uh, would have to be considered state money as well. Tax exemption for nonprofits, for instance, or for churches. So other states have, have refused to abide their Blaine amendments and that's also what made this case unusual, because here you have the Montana Supreme Court saying, no, even though it never actually makes it to the to the state bank account, it's still state money. And so there's actually something dangerous about that as well, which just implies that any money that the state allows you to keep is is still the state's money. Right? I mean, so there's something that's that's one potential dangerous implication of the state Supreme Court's decision as well. Before I ask for the details on the case and how it was decided, the constitutionality of school choice programs private school choice, has been considered a few times in the past couple of decades. In 2002, we had Zellman versus Simmons-Harris, and pretty recently in 2017, we had the Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. Can you give me a general overview of where things stood going into Espinosa this year? And as some people have suggested, is the court sort of moving in a direction with these cases that are predictable? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this case was the court was annoyed that it even had to decide it, because if you looked at the court's decision in Trinity Lutheran versus Comer, it was pretty obvious that the chief justice was saying on that case, please stop interpreting your Blaine amendments in a way that discriminates against religious institutions. Right. And then Montana goes and does this. Right. But the general background was, yes, the Supreme Court in Zellman versus Simmons-Harris decided that school vouchers do not violate the Establishment Clause, so they're, they're constitutional. However, at the state level, there have, of course, been many challenges to school choice programs. When the Supreme Court was hearing Zellman versus Simmons-Harris, the chief attorney for the National Education Association said, well, look, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of school vouchers, we don't need to worry because we have all sorts of Mickey Mouse constitutional provisions in state constitutions. 
And so those are things like local control provisions. Uh, but I think included in that would also be Blaine amendments. They didn't really get a lot of play prior to uh, Zellman versus Simmons Harris, but then people started using Blaine amendments after 2002 to try and go after some, some of these limited school choice programs. So for instance, here in Colorado, we had a school choice program in Douglas County, a voucher program, and the state Supreme Court struck that down under Colorado's Blaine Amendment. But then that leads us to Trinity Lutheran versus Comer. And in that case, it involved a state grant program in Missouri where you could apply for state funds and you could get these resources to essentially resurface playgrounds using recycled tires. And this really didn't have to do with schools in Trinity Lutheran, right? Well, it involved, I think they had a pre-K kindergarten program, but it was still, it was just the playground, right? So it wasn't going to actually pay for teachers or anything like that. But this Lutheran school had a grant application. It was very favorably reviewed by the state, one of the top applications, but then the state grant uh, because they had a, uh, a Blaine Amendment in Missouri. And they said, well, well, we can't, you can't give any funding to religious institutions. And so then it, it goes to the Supreme Court. And in that case, the Supreme Court, in a seven to two decision, the, the conservative bloc pulled along Justices Breyer and Kagan. Uh, they said, look, this is discriminating against religious institutions and people simply because they were are religious, based on their, just on their religious status. And under the free exercise clause, that's unconstitutional. So they didn't say that Blaine amendments themselves were unconstitutional. It's more that in the way the Blaine amendment was applied in this case was unconstitutional. But again, if you read the chief justice's decision in Trinity Lutheran, he basically was giving a very big signal to states to please kindly knock it off, right? Don't make, we don't want to say that Blaine amendments are unconstitutional, right? Uh, and then, you know, Montana serves this one uh, the, up to the Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court really had any option but to, but to take this uh, case and then ultimately issue, hand down the decision that it did. So let's talk about that decision. Just real briefly, what was the complaint in Espinoza? Yeah, so the complaint was it was discrimination against the schools and the parents, but there's really the parents who, who brought suit simply because of their religious status, right? There was this neutral program. It was available to everyone, and because they were choosing to, to use it at a religious school, that's why the program ended up getting struck down by the, by the Supreme Court. But there's an interesting wrinkle here, and that is that they were suing over a program that the state canceled, Across the board, right? How did that play out? Well, that was canceled because of the Supreme Court, right? The state itself didn't cancel until the Supreme Court said you have to get rid of the entire program. Uh, so that was the issue. They had create Montana had created this benefit, and then the Supreme Court eliminates entirely the benefit. The Department of Revenue had eliminated the benefit for religious uh, schools, and then the Supreme Court eliminates it for everyone. And the issue then is. Was that decision constitutional? Both the decision by the Department of Revenue and by and by the the Supreme Court. So once you've already created the benefit, can you eliminate the benefit because of these are religious people? And so the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. Right? That's uh, you don't have to create the benefit in the first place. Montana did not have to create a tax credit scholarship program, but once they did, the Supreme Court said you can't exclude religious people simply because they are religious. It's an otherwise available benefit was the phrase the court used. So if you have this otherwise available benefit, you can, cannot discriminate based on religion under the free exercise clause. How narrow was this decision 
when it was handed down? Well, depends on who you ask. I, my reading of it is that it is very broad, but the Supreme Court didn't just come out and say how broad it was. Uh, the, the court did not say that Blaine amendments are unconstitutional. They didn't go that far. Again, I think the chief justice, he, he's a minimalist, so he wants to be as narrow as possible. But it's very difficult to actually limit the reach of his reasoning. I think if you look at his decision, it's, it's difficult to see what's left of Blaine amendments. There is this talk that, well, you, there's a distinction between religious status and religious use. And so in this case, they were still basing it on religious status. However, it's not clear that there's much left of religious use after, after this decision either, because very clearly, if these students are getting scholarships to go to religious schools, to Christian schools, there's going to be some religious use going on. And so yeah, I think there'll be some litigation over that. There'll be some states that will still try to, to apply their Blaine amendments under this religious status versus use distinction. But I think, they're going to, I think they'll get overturned too. So my reading of it, it's very broad. And if you read the dissents, they indicate that it's very broad too, right? Justice Breyer, who dissented in this case, he seemed to think that the, the scope of, this, uh, of the reasoning is, is, is very broad and very difficult to contain. In fact, there was some talk about it's so broad, this could bleed into areas where we're not expecting it, right? I mean, some of the commentary was on Christian charter schools. Can you lay out that logic? Yeah, so I think it depends on how the court is going to interpret this otherwise available benefit. So I think there could be actually three levels of potential challenges uh, to arise uh, under the Espinoza decision. The first, and this is one that I think it would be very difficult to actually rule against a religious institution. Let's imagine that a, a religious uh, institution wants to run a charter school, but says it's going to do so on, 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 secular, on a secular basis. It's not going to actually teach religion. They just feel that they need this in order to serve their community. And after all, other nonprofits are allowed to create charter schools and serve their community. So they want to establish a charter school and maybe they'll have some focus on character education or something like that, but there's not going to be chapel. There won't be, you know, a Bible class or anything like that. And so this is a school that would be identified with a religious institution, right. but the practice of religion would be somewhat removed. Exactly. So in, in that case, I think it would be very difficult to say, no, you don't qualify. If a state said, nah, sorry, but you're a, you are a religious institution, so you can't actually participate in our charter school program. In that case, Espinosa is probably going to have some teeth and would, would, would end up cutting against the state. A second kind of challenge would be a religious institution that wants to have a charter school, but one that is explicitly religious. And they're going to say, well, look, an otherwise available benefit uh, is an otherwise available benefit. So you're allowing other nonprofits and they make moral judgments about what they think kids ought to be taught. And those things inform their education. So why are we excluded? I think that one's going to be uh, you know, a little more difficult. But you know, ultimately, it might just depend on how the chief justice thinks about what the chief justice thinks about it. Uh, a third kind of challenge, and this would be the most difficult, would be well, otherwise available benefit also just means funding for education in general. So why should the educational choices of people who want a secular public school education be subsidized, but my child's uh, education, which I prefer to be religious, like I'd like to send my kid to a, a Jewish school, right? And I think it's, it's, it's obligatory on me to do that. 
So why shouldn't I be, be able to receive this otherwise available benefit? Why shouldn't I be able to receive comparable funding? Now, that one would be much more difficult, a long ways into the future. But I think, again, if you read Justice Breyer's dissent, he seems to be hinting that those kinds of things might be, might be coming for the Supreme Court. So a pretty big case with a foundation that may be much bigger than a lot of people realize. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I forgot to say, a lot of this also depends on what the court does with its establishment clause jurisprudence. Because right now, we aren't exactly certain what the standards are under the establishment clause. Because in a case last year, the Supreme Court gutted what's known as the lemon test. So there's not much life to that anymore. So some of this is uncertain, right? So if the court still has something of a, I don't know, an entanglement test, right, for religion, then some of this stuff with Espinoza might not have as far of a reach as it otherwise might. But again, we just don't know, right? The Supreme Court has moved in a different direction on the Establishment Clause as well. Let's go to our second case that was a pretty big one and, you know, sort of came out of the blue for a lot of, at least for me, Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Beirut. Now, you wrote a great opening line in a piece on this case for Ednax. And I just want to ask you about it. What did you mean when you said the Supreme Court has ruled that Catholics do not have to be Protestants? Yeah. So back in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled in another case called Hosanna Tabor that there is what's known as a ministerial exception. And so that means that the state can't intrude onto the hiring and firing decisions involving ministers. In that case, it involved a teacher at, again, a Lutheran school. In this, this particular Lutheran denomination, some teachers actually got the status of minister. And so when the Supreme Court decided it, they said, well, look, we don't want to have some rigid test for who counts as a minister. Because after all, if you just look at this word minister, it's actually not that common. It's really only used by Protestant denominations. And even in Protestant denominations, it's often just limited to official pastors. But really what they were trying to hint at was that this ministerial exception applies to people who are responsible for teaching the faith to others. So they were using this Protestant word minister to create a category that would then also apply to other religious faiths. So here you have these cases out of the Los Angeles diocese. Well, it turns out Catholics don't use the term minister, right? And there are two teachers who were fired at different schools in the Los Angeles diocese, and both teachers end up filing civil rights claim. One, an age discrimination claim. That was Morrissey Brew. Uh, another was an Americans with Disabilities Act claim, and that was the Beale case. So the Ninth Circuit, when it was reviewing their case, ended up doing exactly what the Supreme Court said they should not do. They created a very rigid test out of the Supreme Court's Hosanna Tabor decision, and they placed great emphasis on the titles that were given to the teachers because, once again, Catholics don't give the title of minister to teachers. So what the Ninth Circuit was essentially doing was saying, well, because they don't have the same nomenclature right, that uh, the Protestants do, they don't get the benefit. That, that, was part, that was part of what they were doing. And this clearly aggravated the Supreme Court. Like, doesn't it violate the freedom of religion itself to try and force one faith to actually use the titles of another faith, right? That's part of, you know, one of the basic components of freedom of religion is you uh, establish your own standards and doctrines, right? So that's what, that's what I meant by it, was that the Ninth Circuit had clearly misinterpreted and misapplied the, the Supreme Court's Hosanna Tabor decision. And they were essentially trying to say, well, Catholics, if you want this protection, you have to be like these Protestants over here. 
it's interesting to kind of contrast this with Espinoza. Both cases, to some degree, right in the center of their plates are separation of church and state. With Espinoza, to a great degree, you're saying, well, hey, you can't discriminate against entities just because they are religious. But in Our Lady of Guadalupe, it seems like they're saying the state may not define for religious institutions what does and does not count as a religious judgment, and that we're protecting their freedoms in terms of decisions of hiring and firing, not just you know ministers, but also teachers. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Right. That, that is that religious institutions have broad authority to decide for themselves who is responsible for teaching the faith to others, and therefore civil rights statutes don't apply in those cases. And this, in this case, you had a 72 majority as well. You, you had Breyer and Kagan joining Justice Alito's majority opinion. And that wasn't terribly surprising either if you listen to the oral arguments. You know, oral argument can be misleading, right? It's not always a good indicator of how things are going to play out. But in this case, I thought, yeah, it turned out that Justice Kagan and Breyer gave strong indications of the way that they were leading. So, for instance, Justice Kagan said, well, let's say you have let's say you have a Jewish school and they hire a Gentile who happens to be an expert on the Torah. Now, so obviously this person is not going to be a rabbi, right? They aren't Jewish. But let's say that down the road they decide that this person isn't doing a a good job actually teaching the Torah. Are they then not allowed to fire this person? Right? And given the Ninth Circuit reasoning, they wouldn't have been been able to. Uh, so I think that. For Breyer and Kagan, they saw this as pretty significant as well to protect I- institutions. I think there's going to be there's going to be battles over you know how far did this reach? Does it cover, for instance, the janitor? Right, those those kinds of things. You know, so we will see cases like that. But it also the other thing that I think is important about this case was that in a way it acts as a counterweight to the Bostock decision, the Bostock versus Clayton, Clayton County decision, where the Supreme Court said that Title VII protects sexual orientation and gender identity. And so, you know, if they've reached a different decision, right, in Morrissey, Baru, then religious schools could have been in a very difficult place. Let's say they had a teacher who then, when they were initially hired, said that, yes, they agreed with whatever standards they had for sexual ethics, but then they changed their mind. If this had come out the other way, then Bostock would apply to many of these religious schools. Uh, and it would have, I think... For the, for the justices, uh, this would have severely eroded their ability to actually practice their faith and accomplish their what they regard as their religious mission. As a counterweight to some rulings which may be seen as more expansive to civil rights authorities, this is a ruling that, uh, particularly in the context of religious schools, provides some counterweight to that for religious exemption? Yes. The Supreme Court's interpretation of the meaning of sex in Title VII is still not going to reach religious schools, right? That they can then uh, still have their standards and decide what counts as uh, necessary conditions for being able to represent the faith uh, to others and to, and, and, to, and to students. How does this Our Lady of Guadalupe case lie in a trajectory of decisions where a number of commentators that I've read have said, They're carving out an enormous space for religious exemptions on any number of levels. Is is this a major player in that? Does it just rope in the schooling aspect? I'm just trying to figure out whether that fits in that pattern, and if so, how? 
It does fit in that pattern. And I actually think it fits in the pattern that you see even in the majority decision in Bostock, because in the majority decision there, you have Justice Gorsuch all but inviting religious institutions to raise free exercise claims and Religious Freedom Restoration Act claims against Title VII, right? So even though he was authoring the decision, granting this very expansive definition of what constitutes sex discrimination under, under Title VII, he, he was also, in what you could call dicta, tipping people off like, hey, right, this doesn't address whether or not there's a religious exemption to this. We aren't deciding that here. Very strong hint right, to, uh, to others. So I do think, I do think it's a move in that direction. Certainly, you see that you know, many of the justices on the court have wanted to move in that direction. You know, Thomas, Alito, the chief justice himself as well. But then you have, you have Gorsuch, right? So there you have votes with a very strong inclination to ex- expand the scope of religious freedom and free exercise. And in some cases, they might be able to pull along a couple of the liberal justices. Or you might be able to view it as, in a way, the court grasping at a grand compromise where they will have these expansive definitions of equality that you see, for instance, in you know, the Bostock case, what's included under sex and sex, sex discrimination, but then also very strong protections for religious exercise and belief on the other side so that religious institutions don't have to simply submit to, you know, whatever the the requirements are of, you know, civil rights legislation. Surely, and that is not sort of the prevailing narrative that you hear. We often hear conservative court, conservative court going to bat for religious exemptions, but that second pattern you mentioned, expansive civil rights protections counterbalanced with expansive religious protections is sort of a, a, a different narrative of what compromise the court might be trying to balance here. Do I have that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, I mean, it is interesting that the very same people who were celebrating the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock were then angry and upset over the Espinoza and Morrissey Baru decisions. And then, you know, now, so at what had previously just a couple weeks earlier been one of the most uh, liberal decisions, you could say, uh, of the past, I mean, you know, 10, 10 years, you know, the, the only thing I think that comes close to it would be Obergefell, the gay, gay marriage decision, right? So this is a, a huge victory for the left, right? That two of the allegedly conservative justices um, sided with, and even one writing the majority opinion. And then you get these other cases, which evidently undoes all of that. I don't think so, right? I, I think that you do have the chief justice in the middle. He's trying to, to moderate all of this, maybe steer the court. And on the on the left, on his left wing, he has Kagan, who's willing to, I think, move with him in 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 some cases, uh, and Justice Breyer. And then on the right, he has Gorsuch, and then uh, some of the other conservative justices. But he's the one, I think, kind of steering or trying. Uh, you know, it's too strong to say that he's steering it, but he's trying to to manage the conflict on the court, and perhaps. And I don't think he goes into work and says, oh, I'm going to solve the cultural wars for the United States. Right? That's, not, that's not what he's doing. Um, but, you know, maybe this is a, what he thinks might be a beneficial side effect right, of, the, of some of these compromises the court is working out. So, Josh, if that's the case, let's just say that this narrative of expansive civil rights coupled with expansive religious rights 
is the trajectory that the court is pursuing. If that's the case, let's bring this back to school choice, which both of these decisions have to do with. Is that trajectory more friendly to expanded school choice rights, just not only with these decisions, but actually beyond them? Or is it indifferent or perhaps hostile to the growth of the school choice opportunities? Yeah, so for school choice, I think that it is beneficial in the long run. We know that choice options tend to be very popular. And so states are going to find it difficult, I think, to restrict their growth based on Blaine amendments now. In the past, they could always point to, to, to Blaine amendments. Now it's, it's going to be very difficult to do that. It's also going to be more difficult to, I think, tell religious schools that, hey, if you're going to participate in this choice program, then you actually have to sacrifice some of the religious components of your ed- education in order to do that. Right? So, for instance, some voucher programs, they said, well, if you accept students with these voucher programs, you can't make them attend chapel or, or some, something like that. I actually think the Espinoza decision makes it difficult for for states to impose those restrictions on religious schools as well. Some of these others, you know, we just have to see how it's it's going to play out. If you look at how does Bostock, for instance, apply to Title IX and sex discrimination in Title IX, we're going to see a huge amount of litigation there. To what extent can religious schools then get protections still from that? But even if you if they can get protection, will will this new interpretation of sex discrimination still uh, infringe on their ability to to accomplish what they think is their religious mission? So imagine, for instance, there's a let's say, let's say the courts do end up interpreting Title IX the same way uh, the Supreme Court interpreted Title VII. So let's say there's a religious school that says, look, we think that you can't participate in sports uh, unless it's in your biological sex, right? But let's say they also participate in a state-sanctioned sports uh, league. And then the state-sanctioned sports league says, well, in order to actually participate, you also have to follow right, this interpretation of, of, of Title IX. Or you have to open up your facilities. Let's say you're hosting a track meet. Your facilities have to be open to people based on their gender identity. And you know there'd be many religious schools that would uh, object to that, right? So all this kind of stuff, I mean, they, you know, there are all sorts of issues that are going to have to get worked out. And so you could see, for instance, that path that the court has gone down kind of cutting into this. But I think on balance, at least in the near term, Espinoza has to be seen as a huge victory for school choice. It's not going to just lead to, you know, voucher programs all around the country, but I think it will help increase the number of choice opportunities that are out there. Sure. As as Robert said, summarizing his opinion nicely, you don't have to do private school choice, but if you do, you can't discriminate against religious institutions. So I think it's safe to say that some of these decisions were no real secret when they came down. You already said, hey, I I was pretty sure what would happen in Espinoza when it came. They didn't even want to hear the case. So there's a track record of these cases, and you can kind of predict from one year to the next what might come up. So before we leave this episode, look in your crystal ball, Josh. What do you think might be coming down that might impinge on education and uh, particularly school choice? All right. So there are a couple of cases. There's one out of Maryland where a Christian school was not allowed to participate in a, a voucher program because of their standards uh, regarding sexual ethics. 
they've already started the litigation in that. I'm not certain what stage it's at. I think there might have been some prelim- preliminary hearings. And yeah, if Maryland wants to pursue the case after Espinoza, I think what you're going to see is that you might see Maryland. And then there's another case out of Maine. It's kind of a, a, a similar a similar issue. What they will try to say is that, yeah, we can include religious schools, right? Um, but now we're going to really focus on this religious use part of it. So if it turns out that the religious schools are actually really religious, you know, they, they you know, really scary, like really, they actually, you know, they, they believe this stuff, right? And they actually um, make their students, you know, abide by their standards uh, and their teachers. That's what they'll try to do. I think those are going to be the, the next battleground in, in school choice. I think you will have some states test the limits of Espinoza to see if there's anything left there. And how long do those cases take to trickle to the court? I know it's a range, but... Yeah, you know, four to five years. I think what Espinoza, they established the program in 2015. And then it wasn't too long after that, that the Department of Revenue made its decision, kind of launching the litigation. And so I think it's that litigation was in the courts about three to four years. So I, yeah, I'm guessing, give, give it three to four years, we might see some, some of these issues reaching the court. What you could also see, though, is that some of the appellate courts might all coalesce around an interpretation of Espinoza, which, which is the one I think is the correct one, which is stop this, right? And if that happens, then there won't be much justification for it reaching the Supreme Court. Gotcha. Well, if it does, Josh, we'll have you back on the report card to talk about it. All right. I look forward to it. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Professor Josh Dunn. Thanks also to the producers that made this episode possible. That's Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, drop your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malcolm.